0: Here at Calvary Chopper Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Now we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans and today we've come as far as Romans 13 and uh, I know it's so many of you it's your favorite book of the Bible isn't it favorite chapter. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans 13. There's, there's not many people that when I, if, if I were to ask them, hey, tell me what your favorite verse is. They don't say, oh, you know, it's, it's Romans 13.1. That's my life verse. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, right? Um, but s- such is verse by verse teaching that here the Lord has brought us to this point. And I trust, I hope, today that as we consider this passage that what you'll find is indeed it is less about government and politics and more about our conduct as believers our conduct as the church that represents Christ in a fallen and lost world and so that would be uh, certainly my desire here today as we look at his word here if you would just agree with me in prayer once more father this is your word that you exalt, Lord, above your own name, every word of it, Lord, beneficial, profitable for us. And so, Lord, I pray here today by your Spirit, help us to receive it, uh, to take it, Lord, and to allow you to work it into our hearts. And uh, to, by your Spirit, Lord, deal with anything in us, Lord, that's not of you. Bring that necessary transformation. Continue, Lord, that process of sanctification here this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The year was approximately 56 AD. Jewish and Gentile Christians alike had returned to Rome just a few years uh, prior after having been run out of Rome by Emperor Claudius. Uh, But now, with Claudius dead, they were back. The church was growing, and there was a new emperor on the throne. His name was Nero. Nero, then all of 16 or 17 years of age, had come to power by way of murder. And over the years that would follow, only seven or eight short years from this time, he would take the life of his brother, the life of his mother, the life of his wife as well. And as historians suggest, would also instigate a fire, a fire that would envelop much of the city that he called home, and he would blame it on Christians as he watched the city burn. Nero's name has become synonymous with evil, and he would certainly go down in history as one of the world's greatest criminals. Now as we consider this, and we know the Apostle Paul here in the letter to the Romans, as he's writing to the church in and around Rome, people who are meeting in house churches who had already endured much evil under Claudius and now the likes of Nero that certainly to this church Paul would write of rebellion of civil disobedience the taking up of arms if not that at least he'd write of a petition perhaps surely a march a protest or two but alas In the pages before us, in the pages of his letter, there's no mere mention of the like. Only talk of love, of unity, of humility, of deference, of surrender, and of submission. And one might ask, maybe even you here this morning, but but what of such evil? What of the necessary justice? And to this, of course, we know Paul writes, never take vengeance in your own hands, brethren. He says, stand back and let God punish, if he will. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Paul would continue, these are the words of God. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Of course, as we considered last week, these coals of fire are not the the means of our uh, inflicting pain upon another, but rather... A figure of speech that speaks of one being led to repentance. Paul would write even further don't allow yourself to become, excuse me, to be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Isn't that like bringing a knife to a gunfight, as the saying goes? Isn't this perhaps a bit Pollyannish? maybe overlooking the gravity of the situation. But of course we see that the book of Romans, what it, what it does for us is, as we've considered in our journey through Romans thus far is that it shines a light on who we once were before Christ. And then it reminds us then as those who are now in Christ what our lives are to look like. What is the behavior that should mark the Christian life? What of the the unity that should be evident amongst His church and that should be on display for the world to see such that they would know that Jesus is God, that He came, that He died, that He's alive, and that there's life in Him. This, in fact, is our mission. Friends, as, as we continue in our study of Romans, and now we look to Romans 13, the first part of which deals with submission to governing authorities, what we must reconcile in our hearts and minds is that we are called to be different. We're called to be different. The church is called to be different than this world. We are called to be set apart, not of this world. In it, yes, but not of it. We are called, rather, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And sometimes, even oftentimes, that's not easy. There is certainly a tension that exists for Christians living in this in-between time. But difficulty does not absolve us of responsibility. I personally, and no doubt many of you, am burdened for the church today. And, And I would say, in large part, the church in the United States There are many who have seemed to have lost their way in these last few years. It seems some have become confused. Confused about their citizenship, what kingdom it is that they belong to, who it is that's in charge, who they should put their trust in. Furthermore, confused about how they should conduct themselves during their stay here, as Peter writes. Of course, for us, The one we ought to always look to is Jesus. And when we think of Jesus, especially within this context, here at the end of his earthly ministry, we find Jesus betrayed, arrested in the garden, eventually brought before Pilate. He was to be questioned, for he had been accused. And Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, there's a a short conversation that takes place, and and then he says something, something that uh, we can gain incredible insight from. Jesus says to Pilate in John 18.36, he says, "...my kingdom is not of this world." "...furthermore, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews." But now, my kingdom is not from here. You see, as you grow in your faith, as sanctification takes place, even here this morning, as as God's word is read aloud, it it enters in. If if you're listening, it, it comes in, and the Holy Spirit is continually in the process of helping that word that we hear, instead of going in one ear and out the other, to take that word and allow it to make its way 18 inches from our mind into our hearts. And for me, as this process of sanctification continually unfolds in my own life, I can't help but hear the words of the prophet Isaiah ringing louder and louder. Those words that he shares in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, which say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The truth is, the more I learn about God, the more I grow in my faith, the more I realize I don't know. The more I'm confronted on a regular basis with the, the default nature, if you will, of my flesh and how it runs so contrary to what He desires of me. And certainly, those, those conflicts should be less and less as we grow. But I'm certainly aware of them. Because you see, in God's economy, submission and surrender are the keys to success. A word of kindness, an act of love are the fiercest of weapons. A church that's united and abiding in Him is the only army that can, with boldness, storm the gates of hell. A people indwelt, equipped, and empowered by the Spirit are the means to transform any culture. Such a life, however counterintuitive it may sometimes seem, is what we are called to. This is true even when we're faced with an occupying oppressor. The response of a Christian should always be different than that of the world. And so it's with this then that Paul already having spent for a, a chapter, chapter 12, has already spent time establishing what the behavior of a Christian should look like. A, a Christian who is fully surrendered to God here now, he continues in this same line of thought, but now dealing with our behavior and our conduct towards governing authorities. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul writes, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Here in this first verse, we could certainly spend a a great deal of time here today. Time will not allow us today to consider everything that could possibly be considered in this brief passage. But two things I would look at here to begin are, one, every soul means everyone. No one gets a pass. On this. When Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, he's not saying, except for you over here. It's all of us. Believers and unbelievers alike are called to submit to those in authority over them. And I would say, in the workplace or at a local level or a state level, whatever the case may be. Why is this? Well, number two, because authority is from God. So often we see different institutions established in our world today, and we think that it's because man has, has done it, whether it's the institution of, of government or even the institution of marriage and family. But the fact of the matter is these are God's institutions. They are there by his design. He is the one who is over all things. Government is a God-ordained institution, and it exists for the purpose of promoting good and restraining evil. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. We see this, in fact, on a regular basis when individuals break the law. Furthermore, verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So then again as Christians we are called to be submissive citizens of government and to do good. If authority or government is from God then when we resist or fail to submit in the ways that we should then we resist and fail to submit to God. Peter writes similarly in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 he writes be subject Fear God, honor the emperor. It's a rather bold statement, and once again, at times, a difficult one to live out. But you see, Christian, like it or not, this is what we are called to. And here's the thing. No doubt, most of you sitting here today, you are by and large law-abiding citizens. You've not made a habit of resisting or even disobeying the government. But maybe here as of late, you've felt less inclined to trust those in authority. Maybe you're feeling let down. Perhaps you've begun to be more vocal in your disapproval. We must be willing, in, in these things and in many others for that matter, to evaluate whether our behavior, our thought, our word, our actions, do they show honor? Do they communicate good? Does your behavior, and the words that you Share, does it silence the foolish, or does it simply instigate more arguments? Perhaps I could ask you a question. It's a question you should be expecting. I've asked it the last two weeks. Has love conquered your heart? Truly, can you say that that as you consider this, as you ask yourself, has love conquered my heart? Would, would Would the daily way in which I live my life, does it communicate love? Does it communicate honor? Am I a blessing or a curse? And we'll come back to the issue of of the heart here in a moment. I think this is a fitting place for me to make something clear as we continue to consider our God-given responsibility to submit to government. Because there may be some of you here that you're maybe about to start shifting in your seat a little bit. (laughs) Maybe you're itching to ask, what about when the government is not doing its job particularly in restraining and addressing evil, but perhaps even is, is instead complicit in it. Isn't that then an illegitimate government not worthy of our obedience? Please understand clearly, I stand in firm support of what is stated by Peter in Acts 5.29, which states we ought to obey God rather than men it's a very simple statement but one that i believe clearly teaches that there are times when man's direction may conflict with god's and certainly we should be obedient to god there have been times even here in recent history more so in states other than our own where the government has sought to reach beyond its walls if you will to enter into the church And so, please hear me clearly. If the government should persist in seeking to put its hands on the church, we will unashamedly say, Get your hands off. This is God's, not yours. So, let me make that clear. Please do not think that I am not considering that there is a biblical basis for civil disobedience. But I think we need to be careful how quickly we play that card. Or, for that matter, what it is that disobedience looks like. Because inherent within the name, it ought to be civil. Let me ask you this question. And think in terms of uh, more of the Old Testament era. What of the authorities in Assyria, Babylon, Persia? What of men like Daniel, Joseph? Do you think they or Paul were not familiar with evil governments? This did not make such governments illegitimate, nor has it throughout history. Rather, what we've seen, and we'll, and we'll consider this on this Wednesday night as we'll be wrapping up our study in Genesis, Wednesday at 7 o'clock, where it will be in Genesis 49 and 50, and Joseph will declare what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because what we've seen throughout history is that God can use each of these things for his purposes. Now you might say as we consider this, for example, Daniel, who I've now mentioned, well, Daniel, he, he resisted. He disobeyed. And, and I would say you're absolutely right. Once again, there are times when we are called to what we would say is civil disobedience. And that is when those in authority over us are telling us to do, do something that contradicts the word of God. And toward that end, we do have choices when we are faced with such circumstances. You may be familiar with pastor and author Vodi Bakum. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Votie Bauckham is is one of the leading thinkers in this church age. And I found that he captures these choices quite well in one of his uh, teachings that I listened to recently. And so I'll use that to summarize here for our benefit today. Vody suggested that we have both passive options and active options when it comes to civil disobedience. The passive response would be twofold, the first of which would be to pray. In accordance with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we know we are encouraged to pray for all men, including those who are in authority. In fact, Scripture tells us that men ought always to pray. Now, you can certainly debate whether or not prayer is, in fact, a passive resp- response, right? Prayer certainly is active and yields often an active result. But I think it's fair to say that because prayer can be done within the confines of your own walk with the Lord, that for that reason, it can be deemed passive. And so we can pray. We can pray regarding situations where uh, those in authority over us seemingly are leading us in a direction that will conflict with the word of God. The second more passive response is that, in accordance with 1 Peter chapter 3, we can model authority. In fact, not just in 1 Peter 3, but throughout Scripture, we are encouraged to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. And so this is simply that we would live it out. What is it that you desire to see amongst other people in their behavior? Model it. Be an example for it. And then there are the more active ways in which we can uh, disobey. Uh, Four in total. The first would be that we can appeal to authority, but we would do so respectfully and in accordance with the law. We can make an appeal. We can go before someone and appeal on behalf of a situation or another. Consider Moses going before Pharaoh. Or Daniel before the the steward, respectfully requesting to not partake of the king's portion, not to eat the food of the king or the drink of the king, but rather to maintain his Hebrew diet. He respectfully requested and was given such an opportunity. And that's something we can continue to do today. Secondly, we can confront authority. But once again, we would do so respectfully and submissively. Think of Nathan going before King David. Going before a king preparing to tell a king that what he had done was wrong. You could certainly say that Nathan had a great approach to his confrontation with King David as he lured him into a story of of injustice and with a finger points at King David and says, you're that man. Or Daniel before Belshazzar, or John the Baptist going before Herod and calling out his immoral lifestyle. There are times when we can confront authority. We can also defy authority. Once again, with all respect, consider throughout history the Hebrew midwives who were told by their government that they were to kill the baby boys. But they said no. There's no way that we could possibly do that. And so they defied such authority. Or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah who wouldn't bow down and were thrown into the fiery furnace. Or again, Daniel who made what was A seemingly very simple choice to say, I'm going to continue to pray. But in every one of these cases, doing so with all respect. And finally, an active response could also be that we flee authority. Sometimes we've seen throughout history where God's people run. They go to escape the evil that's before them. But here's the thing. These examples before us, in every case, they still did it in submission. That is, that as they defied their leaders, they gladly received whatever consequence may come. In general, we don't have a right view of these things, in America specifically, because we've long experienced the privilege of freedom. Most of the world, most of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world know that when they make a decision to defy such authority, it will likely mean their death. And they gladly receive it as a testimony to Christ. Now, when such authority, though we may not like it or agree with it, when they're not asking us to do something that's contrary to God's word, we must consider, for example, verse 4 that he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Paul here is saying that they are being used by God. The word minister here used twice in verse 4 is the same word from which we get the word deacon. Paul here, if we translated it differently, says for these rulers, these governing authorities, they are God's deacons for you for good. And so you see, those in authority are our sovereign God's servants. Verse 5, Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor, to whom honor we see once again here in verse 6 that Paul uses this word minister again however differently than in verse 4 this word minister is the Greek word leitourgos which means a servant of the state and is also used as of a servant in the temple and so in two different places here Paul has referred to governing authorities as not only deacons but as Priests, in effect, or assistants to the priests. The implication here being that these are God's employees. They're working for him, whether they know it or not. And our responsibility is not to slander or to disrupt, but rather to obey and to honor. Not because you necessarily like them, but because you love their boss. You like who they're working for and you want His work to be accomplished. It is incredibly important for us as believers today, especially as we're confronted increasingly so with elements of government not necessarily matching what it is that we desire, and no doubt then, conversation likely, unless I'm the only one, conversation likely starts to happen maybe sometimes amongst friends and your family. We're going into the holidays, right? Families are going to gather You know, you're not supposed to talk about politics in those settings, but somehow it comes up. All these different ways in which we look at things, and we could say, well, I don't think it should be done this way, or so-and-so should be doing this, or this person should be doing that. Do you know how freeing it is, Christian, when you can take a step back and you can say, yeah, I don't know if this is how I would do it all, but by golly, I know God's in charge. And I know He's still at work. He's seated on the throne. He's above all things. And no matter what happens, and no matter how crazy it looks, he will finish what he started. Amen? As sometimes that is, that's the type of faith that we can have. That's the type of, of, of peace we can experience, a peace which surpasses all understanding, that guards your heart and your mind, because you know, God, you're in control. And furthermore, God, I want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we were taught to pray that way. And so, Lord, I'm going to trust that you've got this, that you're not surprised. Well, this was, this was under an emperor, but we live in a, in a uh, democratic republic. So things are different here. Yeah, you're right. God was totally surprised by who was elected, right? And the come, n- n- come next election, God's going to be <laughs> biting his fingernails, as it were, super worried about whether or not his plan's going to work out, right? Oh. Now, listen, we are not going to have time today to consider the various elements of what is the responsibility of a Christian in the United States of America as it pertains to voting and some of the things that weren't privileges for this particular audience. But that doesn't have its bearing on the text before us today. And really, it's not much different. So you do what is expected of you. Whether taxes, don't like them. It is what it is. The respect that you give. And in so doing here is, is Jesus so pointedly addressed before the Pharisees that Paul's referencing here, when you pay the tax, you give to Caesar what is already Caesar's. It's the money with his image on it. And when we do it in such humble obedience, well then God's image, which is upon us, is rendered to him in praise and to glory as well. In effect, we say this when we abide and and, and do the things that we're called to do. In effect we say, this is yours. You can have it. But as for me, I'm God's. I belong to Him. You see, when we do the things that we're called to do, when we live out the, the, the Word of God, and when we do so in obedience and in humility, we put our lives on display for a lost world, and it's to God's glory. So then, in what manner do we do these things? Verse 8, Owe no one anything Except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul brings it back once again to love. Paul, in effect, has said Christian, obey those who are in authority. Even when it's hard, know that God is in control, that he has a plan. And as for you, just love people. Just love people. Now, this is not a command here. This specific verse is not a command against borrowing money. Some have used this as a pre, uh, as a proof text for such things. I'm not making a statement about anybody, you know, going out and going into debt. But that's not what this is addressing. What 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 Paul is addressing here is he's saying the only debt that we should continually have is one of love to another. It's as if we we said on your to-do list today, and there's some of you, you're you're big list makers. You love a good list. You're the type of person that if you do something and you forget to write it on your list, and then you do it, you write it down just so you can cross it off. You know who you are. You know, right? You're like, yeah, that felt good. I got to get, get credit for that task, right? This is one of those things that belongs on your list, loving people, and you never get to cross it off. You never get to say, I'm done, I did it. It's just there, right? 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things... That's, a, that's, a, that's an absolute statement that Peter's making. You need to be careful about absolute statements, right? But here, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. He doesn't say, above all things, resist the government and protest, because that's going to cover a lot of sin. He doesn't say that. He says, love people. This was Jesus' demonstration of love toward us as he conquered sin. And it's his prayer for his church. It's the way the world will know about him. And I think, church, we need to understand and to to think, are we about his business today? And each and every day, we're not going to get there today, but where Paul is going to go from here, I referenced it last week as well, is Paul is going to say, look, the night is far spent. The day is at hand He's saying, guys, are we awake? Are we doing this? Are we taking these things seriously? Do you know how much time has been wasted by believers over the last two years getting caught up in things related to politics and government? And it's all going to burn. It's not lasting. It's not eternal. If if, If you knew today, wherever it is that you stay, wherever you live, whatever you're doing, if you knew, man, I'm leaving in a week. Would you go home and remodel? If you knew, I'm out of here, like I'm done in a week, I'm leaving. Would you just spend a bunch of time being like, well, let's hang some pictures here and let's change the carpet and let's put in a window over here. I've always wanted a window here. No. And somebody said, say, you're crazy. Why are you spending all that time and money on that? Effort and energy on doing that. You're leaving. Guys, we might, we might not even make it to the picnic today. Do you understand that? And I'm not just talking about somebody maybe getting hit by a bus. It's, I think it's two weeks in a row I've said that. But guys, that can happen. So are you right with God? But I'm talking about, boom, trumpet sounds, and we're gone, and I'm going to see Jesus. And am I going to say, man, I'm glad I was putting up the drapes when you called me, or maybe I want to be in the midst just telling somebody that I love them and Jesus loves them, and maybe, just maybe, The Holy Spirit's moving in such a way where you get to be a part of leading somebody to Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful when the rapture comes? Paul says for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, they're all summed up in this. He says it's all summed up in this, namely you shall love your neighbor. By the way, pause here for a moment. What's neighbor translated as? others of a different kind. Others of a different kind. That's who your neighbor is. He says, you shall love others of a different kind as yourself. Man, there's a need for this in the church today, in in the community. Our community needs it. And where are they going to get that from? They're going to get it from the church. That's God's design. And that's why in in many respects God is saying, look, here's the institution of authority that I have established and and, and obey that, submit to that and, and let it do its work. You love people. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The law functions in two ways, even the Ten Commandments specifically, though there were many more than those ten, you had five that dealt with the the vertical, the relationship between man and God, and you had five that dealt on the horizontal, man to other man, and so when Jesus, which again Paul is referring to here, when Jesus said in response to being asked, what is the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On that, all the law and the prophets rest. It's fulfilled in that, when we love people. And so I would ask again, has love conquered your heart? Has love conquered your heart? This is a tough question. As much as I've asked it of you, I've asked it certainly of myself. And there have been moments when I've realized, no, not at all. My response in a particular situation is not motivated by love at all. And so I praise God for giving an awareness. That's His grace. There's moments, guys, when when it hurts a little bit. And you realize, God, I'm I'm not where I should be. But that's His grace. Invading your life to bring transformation so that you can be more like Him. And maybe sometimes... The very thing that we're seeing in our life is is, is evil and and we want to resist it and we want to go against it is the very thing that God is working together for good in your life to change you. So that it is a wonderful thing for us to go, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do here and trust you, God. Don't think that can happen? Think of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the prophet speaking to those who are in captivity. They've been taken captive. And he says, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away, captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now, for the believer, in this in-between time in which we live, there's going to be a tension. There is, there's, there's a natural tension that exists there as we, as we seek to be in the world but not of the world. It's hard, it's not always easy but we must regularly ask ourselves, what kingdom am I a part of? What kingdom am I a part of? And look, just so that you, just so that you understand, I have a concern for the country in which we live, and I love this country, and, 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 and we should absolutely recognize that we are blessed and specifically as it pertains to the state of this country, as it's handed off to my children and their children, should Jesus tarry in his return? Certainly I look at it and I say, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want it to, to grow worse. I'm not saying we just throw up our hands and just go, oh, I'll just let it all go. We don't have to do anything. No, we do need to engage. but We need to engage rightly. Because as much as I do care about this country, I cannot justify tactics that are aimed more at preservation of the republic than they are at advancing the kingdom of God. Because it's advancing the kingdom of God that you could argue would save the Republic. It has and always will be the case that the gospel by the power of the Spirit will bring the revival that we seek. And then the subsequent change to our culture. It's not changing our culture that brings about the influence of the word of God. What happened when Paul went into Ephesus, the city that he loved so much that he spent so much of his ministry there? We, we read about it in Acts. Paul had gone into Ephesus, he was preaching the gospel, people were getting saved. And as people got saved, the culture began to change. So much so that people who were, for example, their profession was making idols for a living, started to realize sales are down. Nobody's buying my little idols anymore. This is a problem. Well, was it because Paul came marching into town protesting idols? Did he get a bunch of people together to picket idols? Did he put a sign on the street corner and said, vote for Paul? Did he call a bunch of people and say, House resolution bill such and such is going to take out idols? No, none of those things. People got saved, and they said, I don't want that anymore. I'm different now. So, of course, Idolmaker puts together a little riot, runs them out of town, but it didn't stop culture continue to change. That's how it's going to be accomplished still today. Guys, do you want to see our community changed? Do you want to see our country changed? Our world changed? We've got to fight the way we've been instructed. We've got to swing the sword of the Word of God. We love people. And we need to do this with greater boldness. We do. So if you hear me today somehow saying that, that we shouldn't engage in our culture or that we should just totally pull away from anything that has to do with government or politics. That's not what I'm saying, but we've got to approach it differently. I think there's more for us to do. I would love for our local leaders to really know who we are and to know who Calvary Chapel is. I've had a few conversations this morning. Some of you here right now, you mentioned Jack Hibbs in Chino Hills, California. Listen, God's using Jack in a powerful way. Jack's an amazing brother. And they're seeing revival in Chino Hills. They just had another baptism at Corona Del Mar. Over 1,200 people baptized. Jack is literally looking for other good Bible teaching churches in the area to send people to. Because they're, they they're out of space. People are flocking to Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. And, it, and, it's, and it's pretty cool, though. I wasn't alive at the time. The things I'm seeing, especially the baptisms out at Corona Del Mar, it's like, Lord, this is like the Jesus movement. And I think it's happening in pockets throughout the country. But I I mentioned Jack because they've stood for truth. And by golly, if Chino Hills City Council is going to be voting on something and it's contrary to the Word of God, they know Calvary Chapel's showing up. And you know what? They're going to show up and it's going to be a good experience. They're not going to be venomous. They're not going to, 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 to hurl hatred at them. They're going to come. They're going to be respectful. They're going to be submissive. They're going to be peaceful. They're going to say, look, we're not doing it. We're going to stand in the truth of the word of God. But so often we're so caught up in things that are happening in all these different places and distracted that our own community right here needs to hear the truth of the gospel and it's going to come from his church. Do you know who, our local, who, who your local county council person is? Do you know who they are? Do you, do you know their name right now? Have you talked to them? Have you prayed for them? Do you know your local house rep, your local your state senator? We've got to know these people. If you don't, then you're not doing your job. We've got to be engaged in this way. But here's the deal. Just like our our mission here, engage. Look where it's at. It's at the end. And so we do talk about engaging the culture, but it comes after right worship and being equipped in the word of God so that we engage in the right way. So that we, like Jesus, can stand before our accusers and say, oh, we could fight, but this isn't my kingdom. That's not the way I was called to do it here's how we engage. I love you. I'm praying for you. And here's the truth that should govern our lives. And I'm going to stand for it, even if you tell me I can't. And if it means laying my life down, well, that's the example I've been given. And so that's what I'll do. Can I get an amen on that? There is so much more that we could talk about on this topic. And no doubt there are elements that some of you may even be going, well, what, what about this? Or how do we handle this in our community? And, and those are very much the practical components of applying this Scripture in our day-to-day lives, and that is necessary for us to consider as a church. And so what I would invite you to do, because unlike Romans 12, we're not going to spend four weeks on this passage, okay? Okay. Because uh, I don't think we should. I think we, can, I think we can carry this conversation into other venues. And so whether it's the Q&A or whether it's this uh, Wednesday or midweek, we're going to be dealing with some of the same stuff as we close out Genesis. I would welcome you to come be a part of the study. Bring questions. Send me, you've got my contact information. for the, This is why we do the Q&A on Tuesday. And so send me your questions or your cries of outrage. Either one. And we'll begin to deal with it because that's what we do as a family, as the body of Christ, such that we can be better about putting these things into practice because there's much at stake. There's much at stake. I'll close with a quote by Daniel Aiken. He's an author. He's president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary. And he, he writes this. He says, So as a devoted follower of Jesus, I will say yes to obeying the government and paying taxes to Caesar. But I will say no to disobeying the word of God and worshiping a man or institution. Independence Day for a Christian is not marked by a flag. No, our Independence Day is Easter. It's marked by a cross and an empty tomb. That's what motivates us, amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for our time together here this morning. And Lord, it, it is admittedly at times, Lord, a, a difficult passage for us to consider, but it truly should not be. And no no doubt, Lord, there's much more that we could consider about it as we seek to apply it to our, our, our culture today. and. And as we just consider our own walk, Lord, and, and how we engage in the right way in such a way that brings you glory, Lord. And that's what I want for each of us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would help us to receive or what you have for us here today. If, Lord, I've, if I've gotten in the way of anything, Lord, fix it by your Spirit, I pray. But Lord, so move in this church and amongst these people that, Lord, we would lay hold of what it is that we are called to, Lord, in our community Lord, You've begun a great work in us, Lord. And I know there's more that You desire to do. And certainly, Lord, we know based off of Your Word that You desire that none would perish, Lord. And we've got an opportunity to reach those who are lost with the truth of the Gospel. But our conduct is so important, Lord. How we engage, how we reach, Lord, those in our community is of great importance. And so help us with that, Lord. Oh, we love you so much, and I do pray that, Lord, as we continue to enjoy fellowship here together today, that it would be fellowship pleasing to you, glorifying to you, that you would unite our hearts together even more. That we, Lord, would be a people who know and, and truly experience loving those of a different kind than ourselves, loving them as ourselves. It's that love, Lord, that should define our fellowship, our body. And it comes from knowing you more. So, Lord, do that work in us, Lord, and through us, I pray. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.